Hello everyone and welcome back to the Skyrim audio adventure. And here we are. The final chapter of the first season, or I suppose you could call it book, of the Skyrim audio adventure. <laughs> Is, there's enough here to be a book, I suppose. This chapter came out really long and I've got some traveling to do, so I'm breaking it up into three sections. This is the first section dropping right here today. I'd like to give a shout out to my patrons, especially newcomers, Say, I Am a Red Guard, and Tupac of Skyrim. <laughs> Alright. Extra big shout out to Ongoing Still on Discord, who did some really cool art for me, which I'm using as the thumbnail for this episode. Their info is down below. We got three of these to do, so let's get into the first one right here. Part 1 of Chapter 15 of the Skyrim Audio Adventure. The Necromancer. When one is being hunted, it is imperative that they respect the ratio of stealth to speed. When the pursuer is clearly faster than the prey, open reckless flight must be called upon only at the exhaustion of all other options. That said, as the skies in the east grew brighter, Bracknell and the hunter couldn't help the seeds of haste that crept under their heels, spurring them on into the day. They did not retrace the path of their ascent. The large turn it had taken to follow the stream on the way up would make it easy to head them off on the return journey. Instead, they trusted their innate sense of the terrain and cut north, making for Riverwood as the crow flies. The land sloped up, then down, and up again, as if they walked over the mountain's ribcage. The sounds of birds were sparse, but a few brave souls took it upon themselves to herald the dawn as the pair cautiously climbed towards a break in the trees and came out onto a rocky ridgeline. The land fell away into crags and coarse granite slopes. Between the stone, cold soil, sparse flowers, and splintered logs. Looking down, the hunter could see it would be a deadly drop if they rushed it, but already he was picking his path down the cliff. Looking up and out, the pair suddenly had a pristine view of Riverwood Valley. To their right, the White River snaked north from the lake. Ahead of them, the woods grew dense. Far in the distance, they could just make out the off-color patch of green where the town would be. Finally, to their left, loomed the barrow, set firm into the northern ridge of Bleak Falls Mountain. The ruin had been a temple in the old days of Skyrim. It had persisted from the days of Ysgrimor, through the time of King Olaf, and still there it lay centuries later, casting a shadow of decay across the otherwise lush valley below. The hunter motioned to Bracknell, and the two lay down in that familiar way of scouts. The half-breed noticed that his friend was breathing heavily. He'd been laboring since they'd set off, the previous night being especially hard on him. 
Now the sun's rays, just barely shining over the eastern peaks, illuminated the dark circles under the Nord's bloodshot eyes. As they got settled onto their bellies, the old bowman dipped his head into his folded arms and sighed heavily. Brack. Was all he got in response. Brack! Blast, what is it? His friend grumbled, rousing, agitated. How do you want to approach this? The hunter said, pulling out a cloth map and spreading it out on the rock between them. Riverwood is over there, and the river is here. He said, gesturing back and forth between the map and the scenery. That means Anise is right in here somewhere. Basically right between us and Riverwood. You reckon she stayed at her cabin? She's got no reason not to. If she knows we're coming, then- I'm pretty sure she does. Well, then why would she stay where we know to find her? The hunter counted on his fingers. The terrain is familiar. She probably has some defenses we don't know about. With the beast in pursuit, there's no guarantee that we'll even make it that far. And if we want to get to Riverwood and tell the authorities about her, she is directly barring our way. Bracknell ran a hand down his sweaty face. Show a fight it is. Is it? Aye, said Bracknell grimly. Going around will take too long and get us caught. Jumping in the river will take us too close to her cabin. Might as well head straight for her and have it out. The old Nord pointed to the land. We'll come in from the foothills to the west. I'll go straight in and you hook around. So she has to divide her attention. The hunter pinched his chin, massaging his unkempt beard. He appraised his friend. Bracknell, for all his talk, was in a sorry state. Visibly exhausted, cold sweat cooling on his brow, even his speech was not as sharp as it normally was. Then the hunter looked out at the land, pondering something he hadn't considered before. Hey, Brack? Hmm? What if we can't do it? What if we don't make it? The Nord audibly rolled his eyes and smacked the hunter on the shoulder. Damn it all, stranger, this is no time for your pessimism. Every time with this, for kind's sake. This isn't me being pessimistic, think about it. You're in no state for another fight like yesterday. Look at yourself. You think I don't know how miserable I am? I think you know very well, but just consider this. Who else knows? If we should fail, who else knows what she's done? Bracknell dipped his head back into his arms. I know, I... I know. But what else can we do? We go fishing. Bracknell's head snapped up, and he met the hunter's eyes looking for the joke. The two glared at each other for a moment, before the Nord simply said, Explain. We split up here. You head west by the northern ridge. Go by the barrow and get back to Riverwood. Beg the guards, send word to Whiterun, do whatever you can do to raise the alarm. Then come back, with help, and take down Anise. And watch of you. I'll make sure you're not followed. I'll keep the beast's attention and harass that witch as much as I can, till you're able to help me. Stranger, that's a suicide mission. Maybe it is, but this isn't about me, remember? Nor is it about me! You move faster. Why don't you go by the barrow and I keep the beast busy? Pracknell, look at yourself. You couldn't occupy a pissed-off squirrel in your state. What kind of head start would that be? It would be on me in minutes. This way you at least have a chance. 
Even if I were moving at my best clip, I wouldn't reach the village till nightfall. There is no way you could last that long with these two. Maybe not, but I don't need to for our ends to be met. Out of the question, there has to be a way where we both survive this. That's not our goal. And even if it was, can you think of a plan that gives us a better chance? You already said I can move faster than you. Bracknell shook his head and looked away, pursing his lips. The hunter could tell he was running out of arguments. He reached out and clasped his friend's shoulder. I can do this. Trust me, Brack. The old Nord hawked and spat on the rock. Fine. Just try not to die too quickly. Long as you speed your way around that mountain. What are we going to do with the damn Ah, there you are. Came a sickeningly sweet voice. The pair came up to their knees and turned, drawing bow and blade. To their surprise, they saw no one. They scanned the tree line and even the ridge when they didn't immediately apprehend the source. I must say I'm impressed. You've proved a much greater nuisance than I would have ever guessed. The pair looked up then, following the voice, to see a crow perched on a protruding limb of a nearby tree. At first, the buzzard appeared unremarkable, if a bit haggard. Then they noticed the pale orb it had for an eye, and the empty socket of exposed bone beside it. Anise, the hunter said finally. Urchin? The bird replied in the old crone's voice. I think you'll find I'm beyond such titles. Really? That's quite an assertion. Would you like to test that theory? I don't think you'll have much time to test anything. Your time would be better spent getting your affairs in order. I'm coming to you, and your end follows me. My, my, the insolence of it all. I would have thought your mentor taught you better. The dead bird's head cocked subtly in Bracknell's direction. The old bowman was ready with an arrow trained on the macabre messenger. <laughs> You're welcome to shoot this one. There are many more to take its place. The hunter spat on the ground. We have no use for the words of a liar. A liar? When did I lie? I told you about my husband. I told you about the camp. I even told you about that pompous little upstart who fancied himself a necromancer. Perhaps I didn't mention breaking him of his illusions and putting him to work. But I'm sure you've already put that much together. Clever as you seem. In that moment of silence, he felt a familiar rumble deep in the ground. Just another soul to be avenged. Avenge what? Broken lives, brigand wives, wastes of flesh bereft of dreams, writhing in their filth and squalor? You would avenge them? With me, they have become part of something so, so much greater. That's the thing, Hag. They already were. Setting a deliberately striking image against the valley below, the hunter subtly signaled to Bracknell, and the Nord just about beheaded the undead bird, ending the conversation with an audible thud. Without delay, the hunter turned to his friend. Go, he said. Go like my life depends on it. Do you have a hatchet? Uh, no, but I can make one. Here, Bracknell said, producing one from the back of his belt and tossing it to the hunter. Whoa! He exclaimed, bobbling the bladed object. Skies above! Don't throw it, Brack! 
That was never a throw. I underhanded it. Whatever, just go, just go. The bowman turned on his heel and rushed off up the ridgeline without another word. And thanks! The hunter called after him just as the rumbling became clear. He slipped the hatchet into his belt and turned to the open valley before him. Cupping his hands around his mouth, he howled high and long, letting the shape of the valley carry his call on alpine winds off the mountain and over the river. If he was loud enough, maybe he could reach the town from here. But there was no time for a second. He turned, readying his bow and notching an arrow. He positioned himself directly on the ridge. Shallow drop before him, steep drop behind him. And he waited, foot tapping to the rhythm of the oncoming storm. Out of the trees it came. A haunting image of a pale white skull dancing in the shadows. With a rush of splintering timber, the abomination burst into the day. Bony edges shone in morning rays, the same rays that failed to penetrate that thrumming darkness holding it together. It roared at him, spreading its evil claws wide, ready to tear him to ribbons. Then it paused. Bizarre taloned hooves flexing in a way that turned his stomach. Its antlered head drifted, listing in the direction that Bracknell had ran. The hunter took a calming breath and steadied his aim on the beast's eye. Thwack! The beast roared again, shaking its head frantically, a crow-fletched arrow lodged in its seemingly empty eye socket. It stamped and looked back to the hunter, silhouetted against the sky. Come on! He called, spreading his arms out impressively. I'm right here! The beast screamed and barreled at him, its long forelimbs carrying it frighteningly fast as it bounded up the incline. The hunter notched another arrow and took aim at the other eye. The beast covered eighty paces in four huge lunges and dived for him, arm reared back ready to swipe. At the last moment, the hunter calmly let down his arrow and gave a little hop, backwards, off the cliff. The stone scuffed his boot, scraped his knee, and skinned his finger as they all found purchase, but he hardly noticed. His eyes were above him, where the abomination had just sent itself hurtling, screaming and flailing over his head and into the open air of the rocky slope. His enemy shrank into the distance, and he listened for the crashes and thuds as it made its hastened way down to the forest floor. He switched his feet, found new handholds, and dropped down to a narrow ledge. Oh, my friend, he said, moving to a rocky saddle and sliding on his hip down to the low point. You have no idea how much I want to think that killed you. He let himself over the edge of the saddle to his next two footholds. But you... <sighs> no. You just aren't done with me yet, huh? Fine. <clears throat> Fine. Then I'm not done with you. The hunter traversed gradually along the lips and slopes as he made his descent, not wanting to come down directly on top of the beast. 
Instead, he came down about a mile closer to the river, as to lead the beast further away from Bracknell and put himself closer to an east. It would be a balancing act. Hide enough to survive, antagonize enough that Bracknell remained unmolested. When the hunter's boots finally found the floor of mulch and conifer sprigs, he ducked into the trees and found a crag of rock where he could get his ear to the ground. He kept his ear there just long enough to confirm his fears. He could hear nothing coming from the earth, only the line of ants several feet away, scrambling under the bed of pine needles. If the beast was near, he'd be able to hear it. Either the fall had knocked it for a loop, it had taken off towards Bracknell after all, or it too had acquired the virtue of stealth. Overall, he considered the outlook negative. The balancing act would have to play out in his mind as well. He was deathly afraid of that monstrosity, but damn it, he wanted it close enough to keep tabs on. He imagined the kings and spies must feel the same way while playing their shadowy games of war. If he could win this game, he'd surely earn himself a fragrant crown of cedar and wildflower. Lord of the Wilds, he'd name himself. He raised his head and sniffed the air. If this beast were like any other construct of necromancy, it would reek of rot and decay. Even if it were only bones, he knew the stench of old bones left in the sun. Still, all he smelled was the forest air, crisp and fresh as he got further away from the cursed deep wood on the mountain. Dirt, bark, and the piney scent of dew evaporating off aromatic foliage in the morning light. Beyond the crag, he spotted an old treefall gap, filled in decades ago by ambitious sprouts and vines that now stood as fresh canopy. The splintered carcass of two fallen trees still lay half-buried in the hungry earth. Beside them, a shard of wood like the edge of a broken bottle remained pointing to the sky, as if still reaching to the light it may never know again. He crept over to where the two logs overlapped and found a hole between them, a gap where they lay on each other and kept the dirt from filling in. He carefully lowered himself into it and knelt tucked between the slick moss-covered trunks. Not bad, he thought. He could live here quite easily, tucked away in this little nook. It only wanted for a roof. Sighing heavily, he leant his head on the cool wooden surface, his eye but inches away from a colony of liverworts sending up little spires of their own. He rolled his shoulder muscles, still sore from the long descent. What did he have. A battle-tested short sword, steel dagger, knife, hatchet, bow, arrows. How many? He felt his quiver. He had fourteen, and his fingertips told him that two of the fletchings had broken off at some point. When? Between the baron, the beast, and all the running, falling, hiding, and sliding, he couldn't guess. What else? No food, but a half-empty water skin. Eighty feet of rope along with snares, needle and string, flint, oil, kindling, iron rings, and some unused bear claws courtesy of the drunken huntsman. Nothing, though, that would allow him to see without being seen, or know without being shown. He lightly began to knock his head against the wood as he realized that to act in the best interest of the plan, he needed to assume that the beast had made for Bracknell. He glanced to his left and saw a gap under the top tree. The cool light of morning was trickling through it, beckoning him in the exact direction he'd need to go to follow the beast. Oh well, he muttered to himself, I guess it can't be helped.
He slipped under the log, crawled through the gap, making sure not to break any more arrows, and started off in a crouch after the beast. He hadn't gone under because it was faster than going over. He'd done it because it had seemed fun, and he wanted to see if he could do it. In a similar vein, he wondered if he had always talked to himself when he was alone, or had spending time with Bracknell infected him with a jabbering jaw. He couldn't remember now. All he knew was that he couldn't allow that thing to head after his friend. He knew this, and still fear racked him. The thing was death incarnate. Facing it down was one thing, actively seeking it out was another. His limbs shuddered as he tried to will them into motion, but there was always a reason not to move. Gauge the wind, and again, then check all his straps and readjust his false finger, then, finally, he was ready. After just five steps, he faltered, brow furrowed. Wait a second. He looked back in the direction of Anise's cabin. If I can get your attention, then Big Ugly is sure to follow. The hunter crouched back to the tree line by the bottom of the cliff. Checking he was alone, he pulled his hatchet and started hacking up small branches, just dry enough to catch fire. With the help of some kindling and flint, a handful of sparks grew to a smolder. Then, with the help of the wood, a smolder grew to a flame. Smoke grabbed at his lungs and he retreated, hemming the fire in as he did. After 15 minutes, he had a contained burn just large enough that the curling tendril of smoke was climbing the cliff face as a creeper climbs a tree. Packing his things, he faded away, back into the woods, eventually laying low between thicket and thistle, wildflowers planted on his back. He waited there for at least an hour, watching the fire rise to a bright rose, then fall to a pit of embers. It was long enough that one of the flowers he'd tucked into the straps of his pack began to wilt and drooped down into his vision. He picked the flower and quietly ate it, choosing to call it breakfast. Hunger was a funny thing. It came in many forms and brought many friends. The first hunger was like a petulant child, whining and throwing rib-rattling tantrums. However, when ignored, it eventually tired itself out and drifted off to sleep. The second hunger was stronger and more savage. It ran deep and opened the door to anger and misery. This was the hunger he normally answered if he could. However, he was well acquainted with the third. This next form of hunger did not come as an ache in the gut or a swing of the mood. It manifested itself in the persistent and torturous fixation on food. The crushing, gravitational pull of any thought related to eating. He had to be careful with this one or it would drive him to distraction. Now he sat in the fourth type of hunger. The vampire. It skulked in the recesses of his body and cast its wicked shadow across his reality. Periodically it swooped in and attacked, bringing cramps, nausea, and panic, draining strength, fortitude, and reason. What was he doing here? This fire was meant as a lure, but was it simply cowardice? Bracknell could already be dead. Then again, Brack was up on a mountain, and he had no proof that the beast was an adept climber. However, he hesitated to put anything past a being for whom having eight or more dead trees dropped on its head was a minor inconvenience. 
He should have gone after the beast. No, he should have made for the river and gone to Riverwood. It had saved him once before, right? No. Better yet, run away. Not Riverwood. Just away. Helgen. For far south to Falkreath. Anise wouldn't be expecting that, would she? A rustle in the brush brought him out of his spiral, and he returned his attention to the pit of smoking coals. He scanned left and right before, with the shake of a fluffy white tail, a rabbit leapt from a fern and approached the smoldering mass. The hunter didn't need to see it rear onto its haunches, scanning the woods, and he had already drawn his bow when he saw that the little creature's opened abdomen was missing all its guts. No rabbit would ever move towards the smell of fire. He loosed the arrow, running the rabbit through the spine and pinning it to the ground. Triumphant, he stood, shaking the wildflowers off of his back and biting the heads off with a fervor that did not suit the meager meal. Turning away, he stayed low and stalked from the rabbit back towards the fallen trees he'd found earlier. His plan had worked. Anise knew where he was and the beast would soon be here. He just needed to get to his hiding place. Are you not going to get it? The hunter wheeled on the voice, notching an arrow. Whoa, whoa, easy, easy! pleaded the man who was suddenly standing on a crest to his right. They were clothed in dark leather armor, built as much for travel as combat. I'm only asking because I'm hungry. I'll have it if you won't. Waste not and all that. (laughs) The newcomer shrugged weakly and offered a nervous laugh, showing crooked yellow teeth. The hunter lowered his bow slightly and appraised the man. His visitor was an imperial, wiry and slight in a way that did not fit their large frame. His face was sallow, cheeks sunken, and eyes like the holes left behind when a branch rots out of a tree trunk. The lines on his face were worn like cuts into wood and didn't suit his apparent age. Only the distant spark in the man's pleading gaze told the hunter that this was not some new aberration. This was a man. I wouldn't eat that, he said finally. A pestilence lays upon it. Really? Are you sure? The man said, looking longingly at the slain carcass in the distance. Ah, well, it was a good shot anyway. Do you have any more of those flowers? No, but you can find them around. What about those? The man pointed at a patch of orange in a green clearing. The hunter glanced over, not wanting to fully take his attention off of this strange fellow. Those are poppies. They're poisonous. Oh, good catch. What about those? The half-breed sighed. Those you can eat, but you might regret it. Tastes real bad. Good enough, the man said, and next thing the hunter knew, the Imperial was hunched over a ways away, stuffing buttercups into his mouth. The hunter scratched his chin and moved slowly after him. Who are you? You shouldn't be here. (coughs) My name is Mulvon. The man said as he choked on the acrid flavor of the flowers. <laughs> this is terrible. Yeah, well, I warned you. Listen, Mulvon, you need to get out of here. It's not safe. What do you think I've been trying to do? The man cried, eyes growing manic. I've been stuck in these woods for more than a week. A week? The hunter's brow furrowed. How did you manage that? I was on my way to Riverwood from Rorikstead took a shortcut through the woods and then I got stuck here. I thought it was okay because all I need to do is find the river, right? Yeah, that would do it. Go ahead and try that. 
He turned and continued on his way back to the hole. Just don't be here! The sound of cracking twigs told him Mulvan was following him. But I can't find the river! It's easy, just go east. You cannot miss it. I don't know how. Just follow the sun in the morning and run from it as it sets. I don't know what east is. I just told you. Is it between north and south? The hunter paused, cocking his head in puzzlement. Yes, I guess it is. So it's like the west? No, it's it's the opposite of west. So north-south. I... what? Have you ever been out of Rorikstead? Mulvan rolled his eyes. Oh, then, Nev, of course I have! Look at me! After a moment of the hunter looking unimpressed, the Imperial wiped some grime off of his chest to no real effect, and visibly deflated. I don't understand! What is this accursed forest?! Relax, please! The hunter said. Here! He grabbed Mulvan by the shoulders and turned him east. Just walk that way for three miles and you should come to the river. It won't work. Mulvan hung his head. Every time I think I'm going in the right direction, those damn cliffs rise up and block my path. The hunter's eyes widened as a terrible thought occurred. He turned the man back to face him. Mulvan, I need you to listen to me. Am I the first person you've seen out here? In the woods? Yes, am I the first person you've talked to? The first to help you? No... Yes... No, there... I think there was another. Who? I... I don't remember. Follow me, now. The hunter swiftly turned and guided the Imperial back to the hole between the fallen trees. He half jumped, half slipped into the gap, and began frantically inspecting the trunks. Liverworts, liverworts, moss, lichen, oh no no. Mulvan! Yeah? The man was standing sheepishly on one of the logs, looking down at the hunter's mad scrambling. Do you know what Mora Tapinella looks like? No, never heard of it. Of course not, the hunter muttered. Well, can you go down by the roots over there and see if you find any pale mushrooms? Okay, okay, pale mushrooms. I can do that. A great crash and whoosh sounded behind him, and the hunter fell to the ground and spun. The beast was there, standing directly over the gap, the horns gleaming in the spotty rays of sunlight, its clawed hand raised in the air, Mulvan screaming and squirming in its crushing grip. With a familiar scraping sound, the abomination's jaw flopped open like it would swallow the man whole. Gods, no! The poor man screamed, the cracks in his face seeming to split as he wailed in terror. The hunter kicked at the ground, scooting away from the horrible scene. Mulvan's voice soon became a wheezing rasp as his form distorted as if it lay behind a veil of water. His features twisted and pulled and were sucked into the gaping maw of the beast. The hunter didn't need to see any more. He turned and crawled once again through the opening under the tree. A fletching caught as his quiver came through, but a swift sweep of the hand put it back in place and he was gone. He sprinted west, away from the beast, away from the witch, away from the man named Mulvan. He looked back, only once, to see the last of the man's gossamer soul rush into that deepest of hells. The beast raised both claws up to the man, gripping him, impaling him through the chest. Arms bathed in crimson, its elbows widened, as if to rip! And the hunter closed his eyes.
Invisible razors tore at his lungs as he hurtled through the trees. His feet bore him at such a pace he thought he could feel his gear floating in the speed. Cool air periodically splashed across his back, warm and slick from his pack. He was put in mind of his soul's dreamlike flight the previous night. How the trees had whipped by him, feeling so close he thought he might careen into them. Now he brushed by every tree, ducked under boughs, and hurtled over thickets. He took as circuitous a route as he could, putting as many physical obstacles as possible between himself and his pursuer. And he knew he was being pursued. He could see it in the dancing of tree limbs, in the shaking of bushes, and the rumble under his boots. A familiar leaning bow sped by in his flight, and he registered that at some point he had doubled back on himself. A tiny loop in an altogether nonsensical path. The goal of creating as many obstacles as possible had cared not for direction, and he counted his lucky stars that the beast had stayed on his tail and not simply waited for him to come back around. He'd need to pick a heading to prevent that mistake again. Struck by that thought, he raised his head and cast his gaze around the canopy, trying to orient himself. All it took was one lazy step, and his foot dragged, caught on a root, and he tumbled ass over ear into the clearing ahead. Leaves and pine needles settled around his splayed-out mop of hair. Quick assessment. Nothing broken, nothing strained, two arrows spilled. He was back in motion after less than a second, hoisting himself up to a knee and snatching up the arrows. He stowed one and notched the other, turning in a slow circle as he stood. The heartbeat thrumming in his ears subsided, and with it did the rumbling steps of his wretched adversary. For a moment, all he could hear was his own panting breaths. He sucked in air through his nose, and when his lungs were calmed at last, the quiet of the woods settled onto his ears like the weight of earth settles on a grave. The sun was high and the day was in full swing, but that dappled blue sky felt so far away now, as though he looked up from the bottom of a lake, the trees waving like supple aquatic plants in the gentle current. A mixed group of thrush and chickadee sang bright songs from the canopy. He must be a fair distance from Anise now. He looked around, the trunks surrounding the clearing looked back awkwardly, waiting for him to make the first move. Beyond them, all he saw was motionless forest floor. Boughs, vines, trunks, creepers, ferns, brambles, flowers, and stones. To his right was a pool of light where the sun slipped through unabated and turned a boulder to gold. He knew that if he got caught staring at the light, the soft gloom of the forest would turn to the black of night when he finally pulled his eyes away. He blinked then, and his heart skipped a beat. Just as his eyes were closing, he swore one of those distant tree limbs moved. When his eyes opened, they fixed themselves on that same spot. Nothing. Just another damn tree. He blinked again and saw the limb wobble once more. Well, this was just perfect. Was it some kind of mirage? He wiped his eye and held up a hand next to the limb as a reference, and blinked again. It wobbled, but had not gone anywhere. He shook his head and continued to scan. What in Nern was happening? Had the beast not followed him? Or had he lost it in his muddled, snaking flight? Or maybe it was just waiting? Why hadn't he heard it coming when it had taken Mulvon? Were they simply talking too loud? Was he distracted? Or had it really learned to sneak up on them? 
Maybe it hadn't followed because it had mistaken Mulvon for him and never actually saw him slip away. If that was the case, then it put him squarely between his enemies and Bracknell up on the high ridge. The hunter shook his head at the thought that this baffling situation was technically a product of his plan working perfectly. He couldn't help but sigh. He was a fool in a world of fools. However, luckily for him, he was a fool with a good sense of smell. One that, a moment later, picked up a pungent odor wafting up from the ground. At first, he redoubled his anxious scanning, thinking that this could be a sign of oncoming danger. Then he stopped and looked down. Smeared across his left knee was a dollop of what he quickly recognized as scat. He wrinkled his nose in a moment of disgust and immediately felt rather silly. Firstly, of course he would fall in shit. That's just the way of things. Secondly, he had witnessed gore and horror that would disturb his nights till his final rest, and yet he was still bothered by a bunch of ill-placed excrement. Then, as often happened, his brain caught up with his senses. He grabbed a stick off the ground and prodded curiously at the scat. Seeds. Snowberry seeds, no less. By the mountain, he could use some snowberries about now. He looked over to the short slope where he had made his rather undignified entrance to the clearing. And there, nestled between a pair of roots, was a large batch of long, cold dung. The shape was distinctive. He could see fur and more of these seeds in it. Next thing he knew, he was searching every tree around the clearing. If he was going to move forward with this plan, he needed to be sure. The first trunk, nothing. The third trunk, nothing. The sixth trunk... He found what he was looking for. Thin lines cut into the bark, narrow as if made by a razor blade. Finding nothing caught in those thin slits, the hunter looked down around the base of the tree. After a moment, his search bore fruit in the shape of a clear, recurved sheath. He pulled the claws from his pack and compared the two. They matched. There were bears in these woods. The hunter chanced to smile. Not just in relief, but curiosity. He hadn't known there were any bears in this valley. Then again, he supposed, he had always been on the other side of the river. The half-breed looked around the ground for tracks, but this clearing was too well trafficked to pick out a specific line. However, he was able to spot a faint imprint he knew had been made by his face. He wiped some of the residual flecks of soil out of his eyes. Then, deciding the camouflage couldn't hurt, dropped down and started covering himself with the worn dirt and silt. When he stood up, he spotted another set of scratch marks on a trunk several yards away. In the fold of his periphery, something moved. It was definite, unmistakable. He knew he'd seen it. With a swift motion that would have given an older man whiplash, he locked onto it. Nothing. Perhaps he could break off a branch and fashion it into a hefty club. If nothing else, he could use it as a shield. Let that clawing grasp find an inert log rather than his lifeblood. Then again, the sound of the breaking branch would shatter any pretense of stealth he had. How rude a thing was the element of stealth. It almost never let you know if it was yours or not. Deciding a straight line between the two scratchings was as close to tracks as he was going to get, he checked his straps and started walking low and careful in the opposite direction of the mysterious movement. Out of the clearing he went, turning this way and that, eyes cycling between the trees, the ground, and the confounding shapes of the forest. 
Even in the viridescent light of a bright day, he still flinched at every shadowed branch. So many of them could just as easily be the arms of the beast. So many twigs, fingers, or antlers. His fear and caution were driven by the memory of that monstrosity coming out of nowhere to grab that... what's-his-name. He could hear the beast charging, and even remembered hearing it lumbering in the night. Yet still, it had snuck up on he and... Mulvon. He hardly knew what to make of that. What else to do now than to keep his eyes and ears peeled? A broken branch here, a crooked bush there. He sniffed the air and picked up a scent that could have been a bear marking its territory. Bears will walk over bushes and stalks, bending them down, straddling and marking as they go. He saw a tall patch of fireweed bent over and crept in the direction its fuchsia inflorescence pointed. Then he smelled another marking and moved towards it. Many years had gone by since he'd smelled bear sign. Not since he was roaming the rift. Back when he had a name. A fallen tree blocked his path suddenly. It was a thin, young tree. The bark had been ripped off, bore marks riddled the wood, clean and sharp as he ran his fingers across them. A bear had been here. It had removed the bark to get after all of those tasty grubs under the surface. In his state, he was tempted to check if the bear had left any for him. But the gravity of his situation scared the hunger away for the moment. Beside the log, tramping this way and that in the dirt and pine, were bear tracks, just the kind he'd been looking for in the clearing. Amid all the lazy forage sign, he spotted a print clearer than the rest. As he bent down to look at it, he quickly discerned three things. Firstly, that this track was the first in a series leading away from the log. Secondly, that this was quite the healthily-sized bear. And thirdly, with a surety that set his skin on edge, he noticed that the birds overhead had gone silent. The hunter dived aside just as a tree to his right shifted. A giant clawed hand gripped the soil where he'd just been, leaving deep furrows like a well-tilled field. What he had taken for a witch's broom overhead twisted and moved towards him. The jaw flapped open as the abomination's antlered head led the rest of its hulking form crashing back into the present. How had he missed it? How had he walked right into its reach? Simple, really. His quarry was always of living, breathing flesh. The beast had no need for breath or movement. It blended into the trees because it could achieve a stillness envied by the mountains above. He scrambled to his feet and ran, following the tracks through the trees. The ground grew unsteady as the beast followed a hair's breadth behind. He ducked behind a tree to his left and felt splinters of wood pepper his back and arms as the trunk disintegrated in the beast's grip. He veered right, keeping to the trail, and leapt down a slope into a creek bed, long dry and filled with dirt-crusted river stones. A tremendous cracking and popping filled his ears as the tree, now missing its middle, came crashing down. The echoes of the falling giant bombarded him from all sides, hemming in his mind as he uneasily crossed the smooth stones. Across the way, he saw a tributary, a gully older and deeper than the creek itself. He glanced back as the beast launched itself into the creek bed like a cat launches itself after a mouse. It slipped slightly, its hard bone extremities sliding across the rock. The hunter grabbed a stone and winged it off the abomination's bony brow. It didn't even flinch before it came after him again. He sprinted for the gully, hopping an exposed root as he entered. 
Soon the walls on either side were above his head. This was more of a crevice than he'd originally thought. All the better. A frustrated screech fading away behind him told him that the beast was too large to follow. He took a deep breath and slowed slightly. An itch nagged at the back of his neck and he scratched it absently. To his surprise, his fingers found a wooden shard. Shit, he grimaced and yanked it out. The dull itch quickly turned to a sharp, stinging pain. He felt the back of his neck quickly growing damp, but kept moving deeper into the ravine. After a minute of jogging, he finally slowed enough to examine the oversized splinter. It was about the length of his thumb, and its irregular point was stained a deep red with his blood. He placed a hand on the back of his neck. He was bleeding, but not enough to cause immediate concern, and he still felt pretty lucid. He'd gotten lucky. Less than an inch to the right and he would have been spewing blood from a pierced jugular. He stowed the shard in a pouch, feeling oddly sentimental about the whole thing. Just then, a shadow descended on his already dim surroundings and he dived forward. A thud sounded behind him, accompanied by the scraping of claws on rock and soil. He looked back to see the woods above obscured by the gaping black of hollow eyes. The beast was crouching over this crack in the face of Nern, arm jammed down the crevice reaching for him. He crawled away, trying to lift himself into a sprint, but the uneven ground tripped and stalled him at every step. Just when he could feel the sharp points of those fingers trying to hook his bootstraps, he threw himself over a thick protruding root. He heard the crunch of wood, then the ripping of earth, then, suddenly, silence. Finally gathering his feet under him, he saw the beast, fist clenched tight around the root, trying to rip the whole gnarled thing out of the ground. Only it couldn't. Its closed fist was too wide and was caught in the mouth of the crevice. The hunter cocked his head for a moment, then took off again, spurring himself onward over more roots reaching out from the walls, past scat piles all dried on pebbles and under logs bridging the gap above. He ducked under a stone suspended in the narrow chimney and ran under a wiry roof of ivy till he came, at last, to a wide open canyon. He stood in the bones of an old waterfall. All around, trees rested on crooked slopes, their bases turned and contorted from where they had started their journey skyward. White flowers suffused the ivy overhead, and blue speckled the far wall. He saw the worn face of rock beneath the green, where the creek once fell into the valley from above. For a moment he was confused. Was this the original Bleak Falls? It was certainly closer to the barrow, but something in the high cliffs must have changed, leaving it dry for many years now. Perhaps that little excuse for a falls had just been another of Anissa's lies. He couldn't be sure, he had no idea when the mountain had been named. As he stood there in the mouth of this gaping testament to the ruin of time, he heard a rumble to his right and looked just in time to spot the huge boulder flying at him. He dove aside as it crashed down, scattering pebbles and dried mud. He covered his head, shielding it from the hail of stones. When he at last peeked out, he saw two deeply unsettling things. The first was the beast, calmly descending the far slope into the ravine. The second was the boulder, effectively blocking the narrow path he'd come by. Oh, you ass! The hunter shouted in frustration. 
You lumpy, dog-plugging piece of horker shit! At this angle, it almost looked like the beast was grinning at him as it stalked closer. The walls around were at a manageable slope, but he would never make it out before the beast was on him. He made one last desperate dart for the boulder. Maybe there was a way he could get around it. Claws the size of a moose's ribs raked his front, and he was sent flying in the opposite direction. All he knew was sky, ground, sky, ground, sky. Then the sensation of air rushing out of his lungs as he landed hard on his back and rolled over his shoulder. To his credit as a hunter, he reached back and checked his bow before even addressing the state of his body. He thought he might have a cracked rib. His furs were suddenly torn and hanging off of him. Blood caked his front, and his other hand instinctively rushed to his stomach, ready to make one last-ditch effort to keep his guts from spilling out. Pain! Why did there have to be so much pain? His guts weren't going anywhere, it seemed, but he had sustained a series of deep cuts across his chest. How was he alive? Was he being toyed with? If so, then this thing was more like a cat than he'd thought. He looked up as the abomination approached leisurely. Summoning what air he could, he spat at it. Is... is this you? Or is this her? He didn't know why it mattered to him, but some part of him felt betrayed. He'd started to feel like he knew his enemy. Such sadism was unbecoming of something so ruthless. He must have lost a lot of blood for that thought to make sense. He pushed himself up to his knees and reached back for his sword. Come on, then! He shouted. It won't matter. You'll be defeated anyway. I know you will. The pain in his gut broke on him like a breaker on the shore. He slumped over in misery, bracing himself on one arm, still trying to draw his sword with the other. No pain. No tears. He must fight. He would fight! When he forced his eyes open, the tears were there against his bidding. But so was hope. His bracing hand lay within the circumference of a huge bear print pointing behind him. His eyes followed it to the wall adjacent to the dead falls. Over the years, the water had worn away at the rock and earth, carrying clods of mud away piece by piece, and now it was about as proud an exemplar as you could get of a cave. He sheathed his sword, snatched up a stone, and threw it into the opening. It clattered around the entrance, echoing as it went. Silence. The beast grew closer. He fought to his feet and threw another. This made it further inside, and after the echo settled, he heard an unmistakable grunt. He found that his legs still worked, and he stumbled over to the cave just as a wide, brown-furred face loomed out of the darkness. The bear was magnificent, tall as a horse and twice as wide. As it moved, its fur rippled like a thunderhead furls and folds in the sky. It stood as it exited the cave, bringing itself up to a height that surpassed even the beast's high shoulders, and it roared. It bellowed, first at his haggard form, and then once more as it noticed the far more terrible intruder behind him. That second roar must have carried in it some message, for a moment later, the hunter saw a second furry form emerge just as imposing. He half expected he'd need to explain the situation. 
As it happened, all he needed to do was get out of the way. He hit the deck as the first bear charged. It paid him no mind as it passed. The second bear, however, made a point of stepping on the half-breed. He coughed as the air left his lungs again, but was soon on his feet and climbing the soft slope out of the canyon, egged on by the sound of the wild battle behind him. A fully grown Skyrim grizzly bear was more than a match for ten soldiers. All the scholars, all the tinkers, all the kings and generals, those masters of the mundane have been striving for years, and yet none of them have devised an instrument of war more destructive than an angry Skyrim bear. And now, two of them were rushing the abomination. This was what he'd been counting on since he'd first found the scat. However, his success was accompanied by a pang of guilt. It racked his heart with a sharp sting of sorrow. For the beast was not of this mundane world. It was something else. A wretched fiend, born from atrocity and bidden to perpetuate it. What more right did he have to life than those bears? None, really. Yet, what good would this guilt do? He'd simply chosen life, as anyone would. In his heart, he understood one thing. The platitude of the greater good would not mend this evil. He would have to carry it for all time. And he intended to. The bears would buy him time, and he would make it count. He had to make it count. He checked the hatchet on his belt as he reached the top and made his way northeast. He knew just how he would do it. A flutter of feathers sounded overhead as he picked up speed. Without missing a beat, he seized his bow, notched an arrow, and let fly straight into the crow overhead. The bird tumbled down to his feet with a soft rustle. Standing over it, he saw the maggots wriggling around in its mouth. No peeking, he said gruffly, and stomped on the spy's head. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Skyrim Audio Adventure. I am going out of the country. I will not be back until December and I will work on the final two parts of this chapter when I get back. Special thanks to Carol Hicks for reprising her role as a niece. There's really not much else to say, but just big love to all of you out there, and once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>